people, how can you joke about depression and suicide? Well, I'm not joking about depression. I tell funny stories that happen to me as a form of comic relief because psychologically, you can give somebody some really serious, perhaps a, you know, death and dying kind of information. And then if you give them a little comic relief, it's like sherbet. You clear the palate and they're ready for the next piece of serious business. What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. This week's Minding Wellness podcast episode is especially impactful. I actually went into this interview with Sweaty Palms, which I never do, but I feel like my body, my mind, my soul, everything knew that this would be significant on a level that we haven't really touched on on this podcast yet. Frank King, suicide prevention speaker and trainer, was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count. He's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into five TEDx talks and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges, and doing it by coming out, as it were, and standing in his truth, doing it with humor. He brings a refreshing, comedic element to open the conversation on suicide in a way I haven't heard before. And even just describing the impact that I know this will have, I'm beginning to have sweaty palms again. I do believe that bodies tell us when something is positively or negatively impactful. And I just know that this somebody out there needs to hear this, if not multiple people. So I encourage you to listen, to share with those who you feel might benefit and Follow Frank on his various channels as he really takes pride and passion in the important work that he does. Here we go with Frank King. All right, super honored to bring you Frank King to this podcast. I just was diving into his work more deeply this past week in preparation for this interview, and I don't know that I have been... Um, nervous or had had too many too many like preemptive feelings going into a podcast episode, but I kind of did with this one. And what that tells me is that this is going to be amazingly impactful. So I'm here with my sweaty palms and all ready to get into this amazing conversation with Frank King. So thank you so much for being on, Frank. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I start all my podcasts out with what does true wellness mean to you? Well, it, it, what it does not mean to me is simply the absence of disease. I, I have several chronic illnesses. I'm gifted to me by my, by my parents. My dad gave me an, an aortic valve. It's called a bicuspid aortic valve. It's missing a cuspid. So I've had that fixed twice. It killed him at 40. And I had mine fixed first time at 39. My mother had the cholesterol of a deep fat fryer. So I got that. And, you know, and high cholesterol is called hyperlipidemia, familial hyperlipidemia. It means if I ate spackle and pack and peanuts, I would still produce an amazing amount of cholesterol. So, uh, you know, even though I have those two chronic illnesses, heart disease and high cholesterol, I consider myself uh, extremely healthy or well, wellness. And then I have two mental illnesses. One is major depressive disorder, better known as depression, and another called chronic suicidal ideation, which is much more rare. It means that for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. So even though I have two, two physical chronic illnesses and two mental chronic illnesses, I still believe that I am extremely healthy. And there's a reason for that. It's not just pharmacology. I, I believe in a holistic 
approach to both physical and mental health. Um, in mental health, they call it a safe care plan. And my plan involves diet, exercise. I'm on the keto diet. I do 18-6 fasting. Um, I exercise a good night's sleep. Uh, medication, meditation. I meditate twice a day, half an hour. It's kind of a guided meditation. So, and doing what you love for a living. Um, I, I think I don't, oftentimes people are, you don't look 63. Well, you know, if you do what you love, because <laughs> yeah. I've met some 40 year olds, 40 year olds, and I go, man, this guy's 40. That, it's not the, it's not the years, it's the miles on this guy. <laughs> so uh, I think that that would be my definition. It's not simply the absence of disease. In fact, you can be well, and managing an, a, a number of chronic diseases. And uh, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I completely agree with everything that you said. And I love that you brought up the holistic approach. I love that you meditate and you brought that up. Um, I think it's all very important that we talk more about these modalities that not everybody is as familiar with and that they feel are not accessible. So no, I absolutely love that. And I agree. You don't look anything like your age. I didn't even know your age. So you just said it. So Completely, completely agree. All right. You are a comedian with a uh, passion about talking about the two mental illnesses you just talked about, depression and suicidal ideation. I'm super interested, and I'm assuming the audience is as well, to know the backstory of how um, you got interested into the comedian side of it, how you got interested even to talking out about these mental illnesses. So how, how did you find yourself doing the work you currently do? I told my first joke in the fourth grade in front of the entire class. Uh, with the help of the teacher, uh, she, I, I, I was supposed to be wearing my glasses. My entire family is extremely nearsighted. I made, I wrote a joke that we're, we're, we are descendants from the people that lived on the island of myopia, which is a, <laughs> is a, is a, is a, is a clinical, I guess, medical term for, for nearsightedness. They lived, they lived on the island of myopia, which was conquered over and over because they never saw the bad guys coming. <laughs> so we we had we were really really nearsighted. So, but back in the '60s, there were no such thing as fashion frames. Women had cat eye cat eye glasses in a couple of colors, and guys had the basic Buddy Holly Ray Ban, which by the way are very popular now. Black plastic glasses. I hated them. I was vain then. I'm vain now, and so I wouldn't wear them. My teacher Ms. Dark knew I could not see the board. So she thought, look, here's what we're going to do. She had an idea to desensitize the entire class to my glasses all at once. So she got me to the front of the room. She turned me away from class. She put my glasses on me and she turned me back around the class. So everybody could see it once. Let's just, you know, rip off, rip off the bandaid. So when she turned me back to the class, she looks at me and she goes, see, you look intelligent. And I looked up at her and said, yes, that would explain all the laughter. And she excused herself to go to the teacher's lounge immediately. And years later, I bumped into her at the grocery store. And she goes, Frank, do you know why I excused myself to go to the teacher's lounge that morning? I go, no, Ms. Dark, I have no idea. She said, because that was the funniest thing a child ever said to me before since I was afraid I was going to laugh in your face. <laughs> break your heart. But what it did was it ignited a fire in me. When I heard that laughter, it's, it's like a drug. Uh, three years of high school, I took drama, never got a good part, never got a speaking role, always in the chorus. And by my second semester senior year, I thought to myself, I see a pattern. And I thought, you know, if I do stand up, I can write, direct, star, produce my own show every night. So just by chance, I had a senior talent show. Nobody had ever done stand up. I thought, I'm going to do stand up. I did 10 or 12 minutes of stand up. Why one? And I decided, okay, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm not sure how, but. My mom, I told her I was going to do it for a living. And she said, well, you're going to college first. You, I don't care what you do when you're done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. <laughs> you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill. I got a couple of degrees. And then my high school sweetheart and I moved to San Diego. And just by chance, San Diego has a comedy store, which is a branch of the one on Sunset in L.A. And I mean, I would drive by there on a sales call because I was selling insurance and I could feel a magnetic pull. So I did what I recommend people do who want to do stand-up comedy. Go to open mic night twice, see how bad 75% of those people are, and you'll think to yourself, I can do this. And I, I and so I the third week I got up, I did five minutes. And right in the middle of five minutes, I heard inside my head, you are home. Mm -hmm. Second thing I heard was, we're going to do this for a living. We have no idea how but we're going to do it for a living. Now, the genesis of my speaking is that when I was selling insurance, I saw all the great 
old school motivational speakers, you know, like Zig Ziglar. And I'm sitting there watching them and I'm thinking, I could do that. I know I could if I just had something to teach somebody. So I began with comedy because that's what I was, I believe I was born to do. And I, you know, and, and I, went on, I went on the road. I told my girlfriend, now my wife of 32 years, I said, look, I just booked 10 weeks on the road as a professional stand-up comic. Do you want to come along for the ride? And she said, yes. So we put everything in storage. We couldn't fit in my little Dodge Colt, tiny. And we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Seven years and change. Wow. And worked with, and back then they used to put you up in three-bedroom condos. They call them comedy condos. So I, I not only worked with the comics, we lived with mm -hmm. Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Rosie and Ellen. Kevin James and Adam Sandler back when they were just comics and it was an amazing trip, but you know, what was missing. I always wanted to make a living and a difference. Again, I could not figure out what I could say, what I, what my learning objectives would be. What, what are my takeaways? What are my action items for the audience? So came off the road, did a little radio and then the comedy thing was, was winding down. The boom had busted. So my act was very clean. So I decided I would do corporate comedy, what they call the rubber chicken circuit, after dinner, after lunch, just clean, corporate, HR friendly. And I did that from 95 to 2007. Joined the National Speakers Association because I wanted to learn the speaking business. And, and did it till 2007, early 2008, and then the recession hit. My business dropped off 80% overnight. My wife and I lost everything we worked for in 25 years of marriage in the chapter seven bankruptcy. And that's when I found out what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. And when I say that to an audience, you get that sort of nervous laugh. I go, it's okay to laugh. A friend of mine had never heard me say that. He was in the audience. He came up afterwards. He said this, hey man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Uh, and that's the kind of thing People, how can you joke about depression and suicide? Well, I'm not joking about depression. I tell funny stories that happen to me as a form of comic relief because psychologically, you can give somebody some really serious, perhaps a, you know, death and dying kind of information. And then if you give them a little comic relief, it's like sherbet. You clear the palate and they're ready for the next piece of serious business. And so it's, I try to, you know, infuse the, speaking with my stand-up comedy and people have said to me do you not get booked because you're a stand-up comedian when it comes to speaking on mental health no just the opposite is the case they seek me out and they go you do comedy and you talk about suicide prevention so i actually get booked because of the comedy part i mean who would you rather spend one to three hours with talking about death and dying a clinician or a comedian mm -hmm. so uh so then i after I put the gun in my mouth, I got a book from a woman named Judy Carter. She's a friend of mine. It's called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Judy started as a magician and then a comedian and then a speaker. And she's really got it nailed as to what it takes to be a professional speaker. She helps you find your heart story. You know, the thing that makes your heart sing, makes the hair on your arms stand up. I went into the book thinking I had nothing. But halfway through, I thought, oh, yes, I do. Because of my family history, generational depression and suicide. Grandmother died by suicide. Mother founder. Great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And my own personal mental health journey. I thought I do have something. So I, I took a course called Working Minds. It's about suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. And then I took something called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. It's called gatekeeper training. You teach people how to spot the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. And so, I, I, because there, there are my takeaways. That's what I do when I, that's the heart of the curriculum that I teach. How do you spot the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide? Because when somebody, when somebody dies by suicide, you often hear he gave no indication, he didn't say anything, I had no idea. Well, the truth of it is, if you know what to look for, that person probably did. Uh, nine out of 10 people who are rolling up on a suicide in the week before they attempt give you hints, direct, indirect, verbal, nonverbal, behavioral, if you know what to look for. And eight out of 10 people who die by suicide are ambivalent. They want somebody to notice and interrupt. Mm -hmm. And that's what I teach, to notice 
and then what to do and what to say. You know, it's, it's suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. And then I chose several target markets, occupations, the top 10 or 12, and about half of those are actually actively doing something about it. They know they've got a problem. And so they are proactively going after it to reduce the numbers. Dentists, veterinarians, physicians, construction, and project management, project managers. Each one of those industries knows they have a problem and they are actively seeking the answer to lowering the numbers. Construction is the number one at-risk occupation in the U.S. Hmm. at this point in time. And eight out of 10 people who die by suicide are men. And construction's a male heavy business. And it's rough and tumble guys who are less likely to seek help. So that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am. I've done five TEDx talks. The last one was the funniest and it's a little out of the box. It was called uh, Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> Only one I've ever gotten standing ovation for. Uh, I had a ball, my Lord. But yeah, all, all five are on one aspect of mental health or the other. And I used my first one to rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny because everybody who booked me thought of me as a comedian. And when you see my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh or Death, where I come out at age 52 because nobody knew, my family, my friends, my wife, nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal. I came out on stage at that TED talk. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the power there is, it's, uh, people kept saying, you got to read Brene Brown. I thought, how good could you be? So I got the book on vulnerability and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> because, because that's what, that's my superpower is the vulnerability, getting up on stage and burying your soul and saying, look, I, I, you know, suicide's always on the menu for me. I, I live with depression. You know, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And she's got a line in there. I always put my phone number on the screen in a keynote. I said, look, if you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text HELP to 741-741 if you'd rather text. I said, if you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person and here's my cell number. Because we're less likely to be judgmental. We're not going to should all over you. You should do this and you should do that. We're just simply going to listen. And, and I have people call me and I have people come up after my, the chronic suicidal ideation is something that even clinicians I've met never heard of. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I say every time I've spoken except once, at least one person in the audience has come up afterwards. Because what I do is I say, look, we'll do a general Q&A. And if you've got a question you want to ask that you don't want to ask in front of everybody else, like, I'm crazy. Can you help me? I'll hang around. I'll take individual questions until we're done. And and every time except once, somebody has come up to me. They didn't know that chronic suicidality had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak because of the way their brain worked and completely alone. And the relief is palpable. I had a woman come up to me after a college show, 22 years old. She said, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, I got to tell you, it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She goes, well, you remember your car story? get it fixed by a new one, you can just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I just thought I was some kind of freak. And when you said that out loud, she said, I realized for the first time in my life that I was not alone and I wept. That's my why right there. So powerful. That's why I, I think I really had a lot of emotions going into this interview because I watched, I did watch your first TED talk. I didn't realize there were five. So now I have to carve out the time. I'm going to watch all five. Absolutely. And now you've obviously intrigued me with that last one. So um, I really want to sort of dive a little bit more into this concept of it's always on the menu. I think yeah. anybody listening who could, who could understand that will immediately understand that. Somebody who's listening who this, they don't suffer from depression or they've never had a suicidal thought may not really understand. And I think that it's such an important point to say, can you just kind of dive into that a little bit more? Yes. It's a, it's a matter of wiring. I do believe in chemistry. I believe because of the family history of generational depression and suicide that I was hardwired for it and chemically wired for it or chemically predisposed. And then because I was so close to an actual suicide at age four, that always, that, that almost always ups the chances you will consider taking your life. And it's just, it's odd in that it's sort of like 
I guess the simile is it's sort of like mental music. You know, when you go in a store, there's usually music playing in the background, but you don't really notice it until a song comes on you either really like or really hate. It's just, it's like, a, it's running in my head all the time. And then every now and then it just, it just, you know, if I, problems large and small, or I'm sitting at a railroad, you know, a crossing and the train's coming and I'm looking at the train and I'm thinking, you know, if I pulled on the tracks, that would do it. That's a bear or driving down the highway, looking up ahead, there's a bridge above. I could turn the wheel just a little and that would be that. Those are all thoughts that just bubble up in my brain and in the brains of people like me. And you can, you can see why people would think they were a freak if they, if they didn't know that other people had exactly the same sorts of thoughts. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It, it does. It does. It, but it's so impactful. I didn't know that. I didn't even know this till I watched your video, your, your, well, a few of your videos, a Ted talk and another video that was, I don't think it was a Ted talk, but um, I didn't, you know, this concept of it always being on the menu. I didn't know that. Um, and so I, I think that this is really impactful to, to dive into. And I appreciate you, you being so vulnerable and I'm also loving Brene Brown because I do as well. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you've um, said the benefit of starting the conversation is that people feel they are not alone. I'm sure, you know, people listening agree with this concept, but have no idea how to start a conversation. This seems like a very difficult conversation. If they don't themselves um, have similar feelings, they don't know how to begin the conversation. So what are your, uh, what, what is your advice around starting a conversation? Well, and that, by the way, is why and 95% of the time when I'm with a client at the event, they say, we just, we just brought you in here to start the conversation. So that's going to be the name of the book that I write. My memoir is going to be called Starting the Conversation on Suicide, Living in the Exit Row. Because that's where I live. I live at the window seat in the exit row on a plane. I can pop the door anytime. And if you start the conversation, what happens is you give people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and suicide without recrimination. By going up and being vulnerable myself, it gives them permission it, and it, it starts the conversation. But you're right, it's a difficult conversation to begin. And I think the way to begin is to educate yourself on those signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, because that leads you into a conversation. For example, uh, and this is not an exhaustive list, but signs of depression. Um, have trouble getting up early in the morning and getting to work on time, but rally in the afternoon are taking less and less joy in social activities they used to really enjoy. A feeling of hopelessness. And here's one that you can actually notice physically. They let their personal hygiene go. I talked to dentists and do uh, suicide prevention as a dental practice health and safety issue for the dentist, for their team, and for the patient. So you have patients sit down in the chair and they've always been well coiffed, you know, and they always, you know, well put together and this day their hair's a little dirty, their clothes aren't as clean and you look in their mouth and you realize they haven't been taking care of the teeth, their teeth the way they have been. It may be that they're depressed. So those, so those are the signs. And so I'm often asked, what do you say to someone you believe is depressed? Well, here's what you don't say. Um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Uh, if I hear that again, I may kill somebody. Um, <laughs> my uncle was on fish oil. He got off all his antidepressants. Well, if you have mode for Christmas, I wouldn't let him handle the knives. Uh, the, well, you do say to somebody who's depressed, if you, if you have heard me speak and you know the signs and symptoms and, and I always, I always tell people, go with your gut. If you pass somebody in the hall and you think to yourself, man, he's just not himself. I think he may be depressed. Go with your gut. Better to ask. And he goes, look, no, we have a new baby. I haven't slept for three nights. I'm fine. Better to ask. And here's what you do say if, if, if they are depressed. Look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that mental illness, uh, depression is a mental illness. With time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time and I'll help you get the treatment. And then here's the big one. And if you can't ask this question, you need to find somebody who can. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. No sugarcoating, no dancing around it. No, you're not going to do something stupid, are you? Are you having thoughts of suicide? And so then the question comes up. Let's say they deny they're having thoughts about suicide, but something your gut tells you 
that this is a possibility. And here's how you might know, again, signs and symptoms. They, they um, constantly talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying, death and dying appears in a, as a theme in their artwork, music, drawings, writings, whatever. Uh, they're getting their personal affairs in order, giving away their prized possessions because they wanna make sure those go to the people they want them to go to when they are gone. And the top of that pyramid on prized possessions is giving away a pet. That is an extremely dangerous sign of, you know, that they're circling up and not far from suicide. Here's a counterintuitive one that is even more dangerous. They've been depressed forever. And for no apparent reason, they're happy. Happy beyond measure. And you know what? You're happy because they're happy, finally. The problem is they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know at some point in the near future, the pain will come to an end. That's what I tell people to spell the myth. Why did he want to kill himself or she want to kill herself? Chances are neither one of those people wanted to kill themselves. They simply wanted to end the pain. It's all about ending the pain. So let's say they say they are having thoughts of suicide. Then you say, well, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If the plan is detailed, then you need to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline or texting the word help. If they're younger to 741-741. If they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, call the suicide prevention lifeline. The volunteer will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. Now, Question always arises, when do you call the cops? If they are a danger, an immediate danger to themselves or others, you have no choice but to call the police. Now bear in mind, if they're arrested, if the police believe they're actively suicidal, they'll arrest them and there's a good chance they'll get an involuntary detention order and spend three days in a lovely gated mental health community with no belt or shoe strings. And they're gonna be mad. And they're gonna unfriend you on Facebook, but they'll be alive. Now, I have two more questions I have added to that protocol after, you know, what is your plan? If the plan is not particularly detailed, just kind of a general plan, I suggest your next question is, well, tell me, are you gonna kill yourself? And if they say no, then, and I believe this is the most important one, okay, then tell me why not. Mm. Make them give voice to the reason they're going to stick around my family, my kids, my pets. Here's my reason. Remember we talked about how people come up to me after the keynotes and oftentimes every time except one, they've had chronic suicidal ideation and I've let them know that in fact, they're not alone and perhaps steered them just far enough off the path to suicide to live a normal life. I was standing outside the university. I was at Billings, the University of Montana Billings, just finished the show standing outside. Uh, it's a cold night, starting to snow. The kid went to get the truck. I could hear a river in the distance. So snow, river, nighttime, dusk. And it hit me. I'm like George Bailey in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I've been shown what people's lives would be like if I were not there to speak and let them know they're not alone. And my second thought was, oh, great. Now I can't kill myself because if I did, I take all those people with me. So a friend of mine said, you can't live with that. I said, no, man, I cannot die with that. Really powerful. And I think this is, this is such an important conversation and you've given so many really great practical ways. I think so many of us don't have any idea how to begin this conversation. Uh, and, you know, and it's such a difficult conversation that I think avoidance of it would be the default, but you've given some really great verbiage. And I think that's what we need. We really need the, just the back to basics verbiage of where do we even begin? I'm curious, and I'm not sure if, you know, it's up to you if you are willing to share, but some of the moments that you've had personally with suicide attempts, what were, you know, the more impactful ways that people showed up in your life or thoughts that helped you move out of that, at least for that moment? Well, uh, as I mentioned, I, I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And you've seen my first TEDx talk, so you know that I didn't pull the trigger because I had a million dollar life insurance policy, but it had a two year suicide call. And I'd call my agent and he goes, you've had the policy 22 months. So 
people think that the rational brain is completely gone when you're suicidal, and that's not true, at least in my case. The irrational part of me wanted to be gone. I felt like a burden. My wife would be better off without me uh, because I had a million dollar life insurance policy, but I couldn't pull the trigger for two months. And what saved me, ironically, was my chronic suicidal ideation because I knew at two months in a day, I could pull the trigger. I knew the pain would come to an end at two months and a day, allowed me to go on and live those two months knowing. Mm. And, and to this day, it's still my one of my superpowers because it's always there. I know there are things that are so bad. I, I, you know, somebody goes, there's no solution to that. Oh yes, there is, but you might not like to hear it. There's a show called, uh, Ricky Gervais on Netflix, Afterlife, I think it is. Wife dies of cancer, is terribly depressed. In the first or second episode, his boss is trying to cheer him up and Ricky goes, don't, don't stop, no. Don't try to cheer me up. I'm depressed, I'm suicidal. He goes, if it gets too bad, I'll just kill myself. He goes, it's kind of my superpower. And I was like, oh my God. Somebody on the writing staff of Ricky Gervais one or the other has chronic suicidal ideation because that's not a normal neuronormal thing to say. Next episode, two guys come up and they're going to rob him at knife point. And Ricky goes, what are you going to do if I don't give you my money? And they go, we're going to kill you. And he says, which is what I would say, you know, for most people that would be an inducement to hand over my wallet. But ironically, <laughs> I've been trying to do that for 40 years. So, uh, it, it actually, and a friend of mine's a mortician, and he says, you know, when somebody comes in, they've lost a loved one, and they appear depressed, and you get the feeling they're thinking about suicide, he said, I always tell them, let's take suicide off the table. And I said, no, 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 no. Do not take suicide off the table. Move it to the side. Leave it there on the table as an option, because that, that option allows them that they know if they take that option, that will end the pain, which gives them oftentimes the uh, power to go on. I would, a friend of mine said who has chronic suicidal ideation, if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I'd have killed myself a long time ago because I've got an out. I've got a way to make the pain stop once you've crossed that barrier. So does that help? Yeah, interesting. So it's almost like keeping that on the menu is a comfort, there's a comfort level there. Yeah. And, and an attempt by another person to remove it is not helpful. No, it, 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 because it is, you know, it, it allows me to, to withstand a great deal of pain and difficulty, knowing that I can make it come to an end at any moment. Hmm. In, in, in one of my TED Talks, third one, or fourth one, it's called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. And what happened was, married to my high school sweetheart, wonderful woman, but we didn't belong together, selling insurance, great business, hated it was not going to open mic night because my first wife was not, she didn't like the whole idea of me doing stand-up. That's not the deal she signed up for. And so I realized I was depressed and suicidal. And I thought to myself, if I don't change something, I'm gonna kill myself sooner rather than later. And then it hit me. Well, what have I got to lose? I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. I think it'll work, but if it doesn't, shoot, I can still kill myself. So I did. When you, when, when you have nothing to lose, I was able to put the entire thing on one roll of the dice and if it came up craps shoot i can still kill myself so that's how again suicide is the secret of my success and I think about this if i'd been neuronormal or let's say i had a neuronormal brother who was a comedian married miserable job miserable thinks he'll do comedy i'll divorce my wife quit my job do comedy if it works great if it doesn't what's his next thought i will lose everything well I had nothing to lose. So that's how I got into stand-up comedy with nothing to lose. Wow. So, so interesting, but really impactful. I think this is such an important conversation to have. Um, I think so many of us want to help. We want to do something. We want to be that person who says, I'm here for you, but we don't know what to look for. So I, I just, I'm really just so grateful for this conversation. And, and specifically talking back about that, you mentioned say, specifically saying, I'm here for you and I mean it. On one of your videos, you actually share the story of a guy who was stuck inside of a well. Can you oh, yeah. share, share that with our listeners? I think it's really impactful. 
Yeah, it's it's the uh, it tells you the power of peer peer counseling. You know, being with other people that have similar thoughts. The uh, there's a guy down in a well, and he he's falling in the well, and there are no handholds low enough for him to you know to climb out. And so a friend comes along, peers down in the well, and says, "Oh man, you're in the well. That's awful. Wish I could do something." Walks on. Then a family member comes by, looks down. Oh gosh, I can't believe this happened to you. I, I just wish there was something I could do for you and moves on. And then a stranger happens upon the well, looks down, sees the guy, crawls over the lip of the well, goes hand over hand as far down as he can, then drops to the bottom of the well. And the guy in the well, the original guy says, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm here to help you. And the, and the original guy goes, well, um, now you're stuck in the well. And the gentleman the, who came down and dropped into the well says, yes, but I've been here before and I know the way out. Mm. And the way Brene Brown says it, and it, 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 <laughs> I was walking the dogs and I've got chills like, ha oh, because oh, oh. I've said it many times in different ways, but she said it best. And now I quote her uh, about a situation like that with somebody who shares your issues. I am so comfortable in my dark, with my dark. I can sit comfortably with you in yours. Mm. And that's, people ask me, what do you say to somebody who's depressed? Here's, 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 don't say anything. Just actively listen. And, you know, it's so... It's so interesting because as, you know, in, a, in the podcast world, I am so attentive to trying to listen. I'm always being that listener. And I think it's almost taught me a skill that before, I mean, I don't know, I'm very Italian. We talk over people and like we talk loudly and, and, and it's, and listening is, I don't feel like it comes naturally to so many of us. And it sounds like, you know, you say it, yeah, you know, just listen. And everybody's like, yeah, I got that. But to really get it is a different story to really get the act of listening without having to say anything. That's well, difficult. For yeah, difficult. Part of the problem is, is humans are wired for solutions. You present them a problem, they want to present you a solution. Mm -hmm. um, and so a friend of mine who has double, double diagnosed alcoholism and, and she's in recovery and depression. One day she said to me, Frank, on this listening thing, I just want somebody to listen and co-sign the BS I'm going through. Hmm. Just, oh, oh Lord, oh God, I cannot, oh gee, oh, how did you survive that? Oh, you know, just, just be there and make the appropriate noises and listen and just, you know, share that pain. Like I said, I'm so comfortable in my dark I can sit comfortably with you and yours. I would much rather spend uh, an hour with you hearing what's gone wrong and going wrong and how stressed, mentally stressed you are than spend 15 minutes listening to somebody do your eulogy. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really impactful. I almost feel like we should end it there, but I don't want to. <laughs> That really is, I mean, I, you could sit with that. You really could sit with that thought, meditate on it, you know, and really embody that, that, you know, when, when you think about why to speak up, why to be there, why to listen, because what's the alternative? Do you, you know, what would you do? Would you prefer the alternative? And that honestly could be the reality of the alternative for a lot of people. And it's, um, and then it's the finality of it. You can't go back. And that's, I think that's what really just um, is so emotional about this topic is it's it's the finality it's not something that can be reversed we can't come back after and change it um it's you know uh just wow is there well, any I, go ahead right. people are kind and they care you know i, I talked to i do a radio show with a guy in the morning early in the morning and for an hour it's a funny radio show on terrestrial radio and we were talking about this subject and how close i came and he had no idea and he said to himself when he heard, when he saw my TED talk, he goes, that son of a gun, why didn't he call me? You know, I would have done anything for him, whatever. And so 
I also encourage people on the other side of the equation to reach out. People, people want to help. They just, they're uncomfortable with the topic. They don't know what to do. And here's the irony. They're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing and push you over the edge. There's, a, there's an old uh, urban legend that you should never mention suicide in front of somebody who is depressed. And I love the reasoning because it might give them the idea. Oh, depression. I'm sorry, suicide. What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Trust me, it's crossed their mind. So there's a lot of societal norms you have to some almost violate to have that conversation because it's it's very personal, it's very scary. Are you gonna push them up? Are you gonna say the wrong thing? People worry about I, I said, don't the guy, my insurance agent, when he told me 22 months and realized what I was asking, I wasn't asking really about how long I had the policy. I was asking for, for permission to kill myself. And when he realized that. He said, don't do it. And when we talked later after my TED talk posted, he said, Frank, I didn't know what to say. He said, I said a quick prayer and I thought whatever comes out of my mouth next, I hope it's the right thing. And I said, Graham, it doesn't matter if it's the right thing. It's that you said something. Wow. I, I do feel like a lot of people would feel that way. I'm gonna say the wrong thing push them over the edge, even if it's not giving them the idea, you know, push them over the edge, you know, and be, be the cause. And, and then it, and then I feel like it almost, then it becomes about us. You know, I feel like it shouldn't be about us. It should be about, we have to just trust that just being there is going to be enough. And it should be about the person that we're trying to help. Uh, I think this happens in a lot of other situations, you know, grief, a lot of big emotional events in life and that end up we avoid them because we don't know what to say and we think we're going to say something wrong. And so I think it's so important that you pointed that out, that it's it just being there is, and even if you said the wrong thing, you were there, you said something that's really, really impactful. Well, and for lost survivors, you mentioned uh, when we were talking off the air that the, the, the physician had passed away by suicide. I'm sure he had loved ones and people tend to avoid the loved ones after they lose somebody to suicide, because again, they don't know what to say. So it's very lonely mm -hmm. after a death by suicide for the lost survivors because, again, humans are caring. They want to do or say something, but oftentimes not sure. They want to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. What would you say would be helpful for the listeners? What have I not asked that would be important to share with them to make sure that they understand or at least start a conversation with them that they haven't heard before? Well, I would say if, if someone is depressed or has another mental uh, illness or emotional illness, that people always ask, well, what do I do? Well, first of all, get them evaluated. Just ask them to get evaluated by a mental health professional. And if, if medication is, um, hang on one second. If medication is indicated, then, and I spoke to a clinician yesterday who had no idea this existed. It was in behavioral health. I said, get the cheek swab DNA test for psychotropics, like ancestry.com. You know, it's Q-tip, swab your, you know, your cheek, send it off to the company and they will test your DNA against a, a wide range of medications and find, it's called precision medicine, find the one or two or three that would work best with your metabolism so that you have a lot less lab rat kind of go on, taper off, go on, taper off. It narrows down the list. Sometimes the doctors, you know, they only know what the last drug rep told them. So better to, to be a little more precise to, to try to match it to your DNA. And, and like I said, I told that to the woman who's the head of this behavioral outfit in Nebraska. And she goes, what? Why have I not heard of that? I go, I don't know. Half the clinicians I talked to have never heard of that. But it just seems to me. So I say, A, get them evaluated to make sure it's not something. Because, you know, sometimes it could be organic. It could be, it could be somewhere else in the body. It may not actually be a mental illness. It could be a, a guy who was terribly depressed and it turned out he had a shortage. I don't know. I'm making this up, but like folic acid, something as simple as a vitamin. Generally, it is a mental illness, but sometimes, you know, you make sure you have a, 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 a full mm -hmm. physical to make sure it's not something else going on that's causing the problem. And if you determine it's a mental, you believe it's a mental illness, let's get a diagnosis and let's find a medication that works. 
Now, some people are against medication. I understand that. I, I didn't take it till I was 60, and then three weeks later, I thought, what have I been waiting for? But, so yeah, I would say get evaluated and make sure you get on the right med. And, because here's what you hear a lot of times. Yeah, I took medication back in the day. I didn't feel bad, but I didn't feel good. Didn't feel anything. That's what, that's what upset me. I didn't feel anything. And that, that means they're on the wrong med. It should, you know, it shouldn't make you giddy, but it should level you out to the point where it takes the sharp edges off whatever it is. So I guess that'd be my advice. You know, it's better to know. And for the civilians out there who have a friend they believe is depressed or suicidal, again, it's not so important. What you say is that you say something and, and sometimes it's not so much what you say as if you just sit and listen actively and let them talk and, and then follow up a couple of days later. Hey, listen, I know you're upset the other day we had coffee. I just wanted to call back and see how you are because that little bit of caring, you know, I'm here for you can plant the seed of hope. That's what I do basically is plant the seeds of hope. Yeah, I love the the focus and the priority on the follow up too, because then you're you know our jobs aren't done because this is still going on for that person, and being there means being there more than just that one time. That's really, really impactful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. What is what is your hope for those with depression and for those in their circles and communities? What, I mean, you you mentioned in the beginning about the work that you're doing that you wanted the comedy piece to have an impact that it wasn't just for laughter alone. What is sort of your hope? for for those with depression and also for those who are in their communities well i'm hoping to work myself out of a job i'm hoping at some point to go frank listen we love to hire you but nobody's killing themselves anymore uh, that's a that's a little audacious but what i would like to do in the meantime is to make talking about depression and thoughts of suicide as easy as talking about the weather mm-hmm. because i believe if if we allowed people to give voice to the things I think and things that pop up in my head, if I would said what I said to you to a clinician, you know, about the train tracks and the bridge abutment, run my car into it, you know, they, by law in some states would have to turn me over to a judge where I plead my case and the judge may decide that I'm a danger to myself and lock me down for three days. So that's why a lot of times people don't give voice to those feelings, even to their clinicians. I met a guy who was 69. He told me on the way to the bathroom after, he, after I told him what I did and explained it all. On the way to the bathroom, he goes, Frank, I have chronic suicidal ideation. He goes, I've never told anybody that, including my therapist. Go, Why haven't you told your therapist? Because if I told him that, he'd lock me down for three days. He'd have to. So if we can make it as easy as talking about the weather, where people can give voice to those feelings, I believe we can bring the suicide rate down. Mm-hmm. You're doing such an amazing job in this field that you were definitely meant to do this. And I'm, I'm so grateful that our paths crossed and I learned about the work that you're doing and that I'm able to share this on this platform. Where can people who are listening, and I'll include this in the show notes, find your TED Talks, um, just basically find more information on you and your, your insights and teachings? Well, I've got a website. It's my brand. It's called The Mental Health Comedian, TheMentalHealthComedian.com. If you go there, Two women and I have co-authored a book on men's mental health. One of the co-authors teaches QPR, question, persuade, refer, to first responders, mostly men. She wanted to buy, occasionally buy a man a book on mental health. And she went to Barnes and Noble, nothing. Went to Amazon, nothing. So she thought we need to write a book. So it's a four book series on men's mental health. It's called Guts, Grit, and the Grind. First book is a mental mechanics manual, basic mechanics. And if you go to thementalhealthcomedian.com and you give me an email address, you can download an MP3 of me voicing the entire book. I voiced it for Audible and I kept a copy for myself that I could give away. And it's it's story of 12 men, because that's what men said they wanted. We want stories of men by men who have bankruptcy, divorce, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, you know, and how they are coping. We made it like an automobile owner's manual, so guys would pick it up. And there's a lot of metaphors, brain, car, metaphor. You know, if a man took care of his car like he takes care of his brain, you better buy a bus pass because 
just like a car, the brain needs scheduled maintenance. Just like a car, you need to prepare for things going wrong. You know, AAA membership, got a spare tire in the trunk, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you'd like a free copy of the uh, audio book, uh, The Mental Health Comedian, if you want to do a TEDx talk, yourtedxcoach.com is my website, yourtedxcoach. And if you go there, there's a free PDF. And the PDF is six things that will kill your chances to get a TEDx talk. So <laughs> those are my two websites. And, and, uh, and I, right before I got on the phone with you, I was talking to a friend of mine in, in Atlanta. She just got an audition, a call back to a TED talk. And she's like, what am I going to talk about for my takeaways? <laughs> well, finally, after all those years, I have takeaways. I have learning objectives. So I, I helped her organize, you know, her takeaways. And so, uh, yeah. And then, you know, YouTube, the mental health comedian on YouTube, the mental health comedian on Facebook, the mental health comedian on Instagram. Uh, you probably see a pattern. Uh, <laughs> I, I stop trying to establish a brand so that, you know, cause nowadays if people can't find you, they can't book you. So you, you know, you need to, you need to have a presence. We have a, we have a uh, podcast suicide prevention punchline because so many comedians kill themselves. So we have comedians and clinicians on. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm definitely going to share all of that in the show notes because um, so many conversations that if they're not being had person to person, there's at least a lot of resources here people can tap into in the meantime to learn more, get more comfortable with it. And um, I I just, I love that you are, you have that kind of a presence um, both online and in your speaking engagement. So thank you again so much. Frank, for all the work that you do and for sharing these insights today, just so valuable and insightful. And I, and I appreciate your vulnerability sharing your own story as well. Well, and I thank you for having me on and please put my phone number and I give it to you in the show notes. So if somebody, like I said, if you're just having a really bad day and want to talk to somebody who hears the same music, it's 858-405-5653, 858-405-5653. And people call me sometimes about themselves, sometimes about a a friend or a family member. I get Facebook messages, um, texts, uh, and don't worry about calling. You know, it's late at night. I turn my phone off when I go to bed. My mother always said it's never good news at two in the morning. <laughs> so just turn it on. You know, I'll call you back as soon as I wake up. So don't worry about waking me up. Phone's not going to wake me up. Wonderful. That's really very generous of you. And uh, I'm just going to trust that all my listeners will will use that wisely. Um, but I, I appreciate you being open with that. And all of your, your really all your insights are just so valuable. I myself, I'm going to listen to this a few times back. So thank you again, Frank. Yes, thank you. And, uh, and, and I hope no, no one else in your life decides to end their life. It is it's, for everyone who does, it impacts at least 25 people. Hmm really important information. A huge thank you to Frank for joining us and sharing insights into this vulnerable but so important topic. I actually look forward to sharing more topics on mental health on this podcast as this is truly just the beginning of the conversation, at least on here. I feel like there is so much room for growth in this area and for sharing insights. And I look forward to offering that up here on this platform. Thank you again for joining me for continuing the conversations on minding your wellness. I encourage you to share as you see fit and I'll see you here again next time.